0: Welcome to part two, Persuasion, the Art of Sustainable Investment, with Dr. Shutter Chakraborty and Vanessa Hodge. And I suppose the, the other flip side is we're collecting all this data. And for, for people that are not, aren't familiar with the, the numbers, these are new metrics for, for most asset owners. You know, it can just be like a sea of numbers. You know, Are these numbers good? Are they bad? What, what do we actually do with it? and and it can just be a, a, a data dump in a table. Um, so so what tips do you have in the way that this numerous data can be presented to, to really help end users make sense of all the noise?
1: Yeah, so there's a few ways to look at this. Um, data is not something that's interpreted well by humans generally, it's a learned skill. And even then, um, even those of us who study massive data sets still fall prey to our innate biases to mix up decimal points and zeros. I, the average human does not understand the difference between 1 billion and 1 trillion. It's just it's just a really large number in our brains. So data can't just be presented as data. It can't just numbers though. One of the biggest failures in communication is presenting the numbers that it just does not register for the majority of us. We're not wired that way to understand and interpret and interpret data in a way that is actionable or beneficial. So we need to tell stories. We need to present data in ways that we know are going to be interpreted and acted upon. So it's um, independently beneficial, but then beneficial for communities, beneficial at the state level, beneficial for companies and the wider sectors that companies belong to. Data needs to be presented as stories. And it's also really helpful to have a diverse team to actually have expertise. And I say that in quotes because what is expertise, right? Data interpretation, of course, we know um, we know that that's a certain type of expertise, but to then be able to translate that requires not just scientists, not just data scientists especially, but really thinking through um, what an interdisciplinary team would look like so we can address complex issues, so that we can present data in a way that is actually going to be acted upon beneficially. and. Some of the key points I want to make on this are again, this isn't exhaustive, but it's a way to start to think about who the data is being presented to and how they are potentially going to interpret it. So we need to understand first, who is this target audience? And what is it that the target audience understands about this data, first of all? So identifying the audience and recognizing that it, that is more than just one demographic, It is um consumers and consumers can be divided by age groups by gender by um geographic lines so all of these things are critical to think through before any sort of data interpretation or presentation it's also important to remember there's going to be misconceptions there's already going to be existing beliefs and schemas and information and perceptions around data so if we're talking about presenting new information to an existing demographic that already has existing perceptions, now that is uh, that is something that is just not thought through enough prior to the presentation of data. That it needs to be studied thoroughly, which is what existing misconceptions might already exist in the target audience. And then an understanding of what the target audience actually wants to know about this data. Does it actually consider the data helpful? Is it gonna actually, In improve understanding of a particular risk, of a particular issue, uh, of a particular decision to make, or will it be ignored because the risk isn't actually seen to be that high? So, what's the point of even sharing data? Um, Will it be, you know, at best ignored, at worst actually used um, in a way that we're, we're the opposite of what we're hoping to achieve, right? So, that's, you know, the potential outcomes really need to be considered. Then we also need to think about what is the target audience's concerns? What are their perceptions? Do they feel vulnerable? Do they find other demographics vulnerable, like their children? Are they concerned more about their children or the elderly? So before we present any new data to aid decision-making, we have to understand what specific concerns and perceptions exist in this target audience. Um, And then how do people or consumers or stakeholders or additional portfolio companies, Let's identify who this target audience is. How do they want to receive information? Is it through that the company? Is it through the asset manager? Is it through a spokesperson? Is it through a scientist? Is it through the media? So that is something that's critical. How is the information being delivered? And is it being delivered through somebody or some form that is trusted? So where is where does trust fall for the target audience that's receiving this information? and this might seem silly. This might actually seem super obvious, but are the information sources, are the channels in which this information and data is being presented, is it even accessible? So, if we're trying to improve the lives or help um, find better financial decision making or change consumer behavior in, let's say, vulnerable countries, or even here in the United States, where there isn't great Wi-Fi or connectivity in some parts of this, you know, this developed nation of the United States, um to share information through those means means it won't even potentially reach the end target audience that needs this data. So are the sources and channels of information actually accessible to the target audience? That's something that is seems really obvious, but really isn't considered enough. So.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that there's a lot to think about. I think that the key message is know, don't be lazy, just don't present it as you've got it. Really think about your audience. And there's a lot I'm certainly going to be taking away with my communication. Um, And I I do want to to just ask your um, thoughts around the fact that there's lots of public statements being made about carbon neutral targets, net zero targets. I mean, is it best to get your commitment out into the public domain to avoid being left behind? Or should you have a credible transition plan before actually announcing your target to the world?
1: Um, it's definitely chicken and egg here in that we, if we're able to have a target, it will support reaching those targets at the same time. If you're not able to reach the targets, how can you set those targets? Uh, it's, it's a vicious cycle. That doesn't mean we can't have net zero pledges in place because increasingly, the amount of countries that are getting on board and are being legally held accountable are increasing, and that pressure is is having a trickle-down effect. So as I mentioned in the beginning, India's net zero pledge, pledge—it's it actually, despite it being later than 2050, which is where we know science wants us to be, is to reach net zero by 2050 to ensure that we get that 1.5 degrees Celsius maxing out by the end of this century. What it means is that the majority of the economy is now going to be covered by net zero targets. And so there's a lot of enthusiasm for this. Um, And that's, I mean, that's great because it's moving us forward from where we were, um, even just uh, around the Paris Accords. The idea of seeing Saudi Arabia actually set a net target, net zero target, seeing India set a net zero target didn't even seem feasible. So the fact that we've got these targets, even though they're not necessarily aligned, to the, uh, to the 2050 date, it's still, it's still moving us in the right direction. But it doesn't mean, just the adoption of a net zero target doesn't mean that a country's on track to wean its economy of fossil fuels in time to stop the worst of climate change. Um, and different countries have very different strategies in mind for how to reach net zero. So there's a lot of inconsistencies that are still very much, uh, very much, you know, being investigated and being very closely watched and one of the one of the groups that i recommend for those who are interested in listening to this is oxford's net zero tracker so this net zero tracker was launched the week just before cop 26 and it was show. it was basically saying how only really a fraction of the net zero commitments uh, have clear plans attached so that's why this really does become that vicious cycle um, Only 18% of global emissions and 27% of global global GDP are covered by these robust pledges. So these pledges it's not that they're useless it's just as i've been saying it's really it's moving us in the right direction. Um, But it does not get us off the track for net zero emissions, so we have to remember that now we're asking countries to come back to keep this 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, target alive by the end of the century we're asking countries to come back to really align their, to show their blueprints for how they're going to get uh, to net zero by the timelines that they put forward. And here's what the standard is. And again, uh, there's countries, um, there are 16 countries that really fulfill these standards, including Sweden, for example. But let's first go through what the standards are. So we need to cut human-caused carbon emissions by 45% from 2010 levels by 2030. And that will keep that global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius So by the end of the century, so that's one. The second target is to include all greenhouse gas emissions, not just carbon dioxide, but also methane. And the methane pledge that came out of COP26 was really uh, monumental in moving us forward globally to actually commit to reducing methane. Methane in the atmosphere stays a shorter amount of time as compared to carbon dioxide. Um, and it's highly more potent. And so if we can reduce methane, we can come a long way in reaching these net zero targets. So we have to include methane alongside carbon dioxide and other lesser known um, greenhouse gases. And we also, it's not just about which greenhouse gases, but are we covering all emissions generated by a country's residents, regardless of where they're generated. So only reducing emissions produced within the border that leaves out when country citizens fly, for example, or ship products around the world, um, or the production of products outside of country borders. So that is something that um, is also a standard for net zero. The third standard is that net zero needs to be accomplished by detailed plans of how they're going to be met. And that means not just um, weaning off fossil fuels, but policies to expand renewable energy, to restore carbon sinks, to help industries transition, and there's there's more. We need to actually see real plans and how do governments actually be, how are we going to hold governments accountable if they don't stay on track? Is it going to be legally binding? So this is, an, this is one of the issues that we're learning coming out of COP26 that, you know, there needs to not just be pledges. That doesn't mean reality. We really need to hold countries accountable. Only 14 out of 139 countries that have pledged net zeros have made their, tar- made their targets actually legally binding. And um, we need countries to produce a detailed plan. We need to see what Russia's gonna do. And some countries are just notoriously difficult with this, but that's where the global pressure of actually putting a pledge forward comes in because we, at least through peer pressure, can hold some accountability, but I'm saying we need to go further. There needs to be legal accountability. And the final, final target, um, is to make sure that emissions are not just being offset. So offsetting can be domestic, and this is where a country captures carbon and it then plants trees, or it can be overseas, but ultimately the emissions reductions need to be counted and it can't just be offset within the country. So that is what the final four uh, net zero standard is as, as described by the Oxford Net Zero Tracker. So that is, um, that's where we're looking for, that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to actually see countries uphold these four standards.
0: That's really interesting. And, and thank you for the update, if, that, if that's um, something that's only been around for a couple of weeks as well. Yep. Um, you're you're the, the president of the US operations for We Don't Have Time. So can you tell us a bit more about the aims of, of that initiative?
1: Yeah, so We Don't Have Time is actually a tool. It is the world's largest social network and review platform for climate action. And it's an opportunity for all stakeholders in climate from individuals, and I say this facetiously, but in you know, people who breathe air, people who eat food, we're all stakeholders in the climate. So individuals, and then individuals wear many different hats. So they are also community members. Um, So you can use this tool, this platform as an individual, you can use it to showcase uh, different community level efforts. You can use it with your employee head on and you can um, showcase what what good you are doing as part of your company. What is your company doing? You can share ideas that are working. You can find solutions to some of the challenges you are having at the company level, at the individual level, at the community level. You can join forces. So something that you're working on Um, might actually be able to be scaled through additional uh, through this network through this through the different groups that you can find support in and support for and so we're trying to create this um, virtual virtual kind of one-stop shop for all things climate action that then has real world impacts that's the point and purpose of we don't have time and it's really built on all of the principles of communications we've been talking about so the importance of two-way dialogue, not just presenting data, not just doing these data dumps, because they haven't worked. It's why we find ourselves in this mess, ultimately, is that we're not taking into consideration the people that we're communicating to, what their existing perceptions are, and how they might outright ignore or reject any efforts because we didn't take the time to really understand what's in people's minds, what's in their brains already. So this tool builds on that behavioral science. Um, and it allows for that two-way dialogue. It allows to be able to collect perceptions, to understand existing interpretations of data, to then be able to better share data in a way that is actually going to um, amplify efforts. So it's a it's a tool for amplification of good work. It's a uh, networking and communication connection um, platform that really the goal is just to share and scale because we really need to collaborate. Ultimately, what I was saying earlier as well is that it's not just scientists; it's also individuals, it's artists, it's politicians, it's policymakers, it's um, every single stakeholder and every type of expertise that is going to ultimately contribute to this collective effort to confront the climate crisis. Everybody has a role to play here, so. That's ultimately what we're trying to do: is connect all of those dots. And it's going to be, and I truly believe, it's, uh, it's that's where innovation comes from. It's when you bring in diversity of thought. It's when you have perspectives and you break down silos and you are able to, um, co- you know, break barriers to communication. And it's, it's that's where that's the exciting um, part of this puzzle that we haven't unlocked yet. Mm is how do we actually bring together diverse talent across generations, across sectors, across society to really unlock the creativity and the human ingenuity that's gonna push us forward to overcome these impacts of climate change. So that's the point of the tool.
0: No, it sounds like a fantastic tool. So thank you for for sharing. Um, And sadly, we don't have time for, for any more questions now. Um, and I think before before we started our, our conversation, I, I did feel a little bit pessimistic about the challenge we all face. But hearing what you're saying about, you know, collectively we all need to do our little bits, no matter how small. You know, it's got got to make a difference in the long run. And my favourite quote, which is quite applicable for this, this conversation, is is actually from The Lorax by Dr. Zeus, which is unless someone like you cares an awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. So, Dr. Chakraborty, I want to thank you so much for your contribution and insights today. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Vanessa. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions.